Welcome to the Skift Ideas Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion with the thinkers, craftspeople, and operators that are moving the travel industry forward. This is me, Rafa Tali, along with my co-host, Colin Nagy. I'm so glad that we're uh, doing this again. Welcome back, Colin. Thank you. Nice to be here. And thank you for carrying the load uh, solo last in the last episode. I was just not able to do it. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah. So in this episode, um, we're looking at the value of souvenirs in the modern travel economy. And the reason why we're trying to scratch this itch, this topic, if you will, is about four months ago, I randomly posted on LinkedIn uh, this, this post, which I'm going to just quickly read. Nine out of 10 tourism souvenirs lie unused, ignored, underappreciated in people's houses. And yet we always forget the lesson and buy them whenever we travel. How do you reinvent this industry to prevent this waste, which likely runs into billions of dollars? So innocent enough, but provocative enough, I got so many, dozens and dozens, 51 if I see this right here, um, comments on it, um, hundreds of likes uh, on it. And various uh, different opinions on, well, people are asking, how did I get the nine out of 10 souvenir? That was just a random number I pulled out of just my own personal life, I guess. In a world where everybody's rethinking their carbon footprint, their general footprint, environmental footprint on the world, these mass-produced, relatively cheap trinkets that we uh, always buy in our travels, uh, how come they have not been reinvented? And how do you make this practice, uh, this industry and practice more sustainable? Yet at the same time, the people that are at the front lines of this uh, people who sell these uh, souvenirs, the people that really, uh, in many cases, are the margins of the society that of, in these destinations that we go, how do we make sure that their livelihoods obviously are not affected by it? So we're not going to solve all of these issues on this podcast. When I posted this, somebody who commented on it is uh, somebody who we have guest in this show, Keetika Agarwal, who's the CEO and founder of Vacation with an Artist. It's a service that does exactly what the title says. You can do mini apprenticeships with artists in 27 different countries, I think, right now um, at this point. So I want to welcome Geetika. Uh, Geetika, thank you for joining us. And we'll talk about um, sort of how you're rethinking the souvenir world, if you will. Thanks for having me, Rafa. Um, I just absolutely love this topic. and. I also love that you're asking this very important question because uh, it's only when we think about these questions can we actually innovate and move forward because we're living in a different time and it is time to rethink about some of our own behaviors and the industry and how we can kind of change them for the better. Uh, just quickly explain, Geetika, your, um, your company and what it does and then we'll jump into the souvenir discussion. Sure. So as you said, it's called Vacation with an Artist, and it's exactly uh, what it is. It's a way for you to spend up to a week with a master artist or maker in anywhere around the world, learning their crafts, um, immersing into their day-to-day -day life, um, spending almost half a day every day for a week, um, 
in their studio, learning the skills they've acquired over the years, uh, getting to meet the community, doing the things that they do on a day-to-day basis, and coming back home with a new skill or an also better understanding of the, the place. Um, it's all one-on-one. So imagine learning calligraphy in Kyoto for a week with a master calligrapher or learning how to make your own bespoke shoes in London for a week oh, wow. or um, learning natural textile dyeing in Mexico um, with a Zapotec weaver. So we're in 27 different countries and the art forms vary um, as wide as this world. You know, there are so many crafts, you can't really um, put a number to it. I actually tried doing that once, um, trying to count how many crafts there are in the world, and it's impossible to do that. But yes, the world is filled with crafts, and, and our culture is, re- you know, global culture is super rich. So the idea is to be able to um, learn those cultures through craft um, and understand the place better. And so the reason why I wanted you 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 on is because you're trying these uh, after as part of this apprenticeship, people typically create something physical, right? Hundred hundreds is is hundred percent. They come out with something physical, correct? Yes, that's correct. So you end up um, making hands on. You are in the studio. So let's say you're making pottery. You have your hands in clay. Um, you're getting dirty. Um, you know, you're making things. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what your skill level is. You could be a beginner, you could be an advanced, it doesn't matter. You have your hands in clay right. uh, every day for a few hours. With the idea that the souvenir, if you will, that comes out of this is is a lot more meaningful to you uh, than just a mass-produced one. So that's why we wanted you on there. Um, and and we'll get a little bit into that. I wanted to start with with both of you, Colin uh, and Geetika. Uh, Colin, you travel a lot, fair to say. Globally, you you are super traveler. You're you're super traveler, super traveler. What's your personal uh, souvenir buying philosophy, if you have one? You know, it's it's a really good question, and I think for me, and this really maps nicely to what you guys were just talking about, is when something is imbued with emotion, when there's a certain level of craft and touch. Um, I think that that's kind of the the criteria. Oftentimes it can be something that's like given, you know, I had a friend from Bhutan that gave me something small and relatively inconsequential, but because of the the thought and the care, it was a beautiful woven item. And, you know, that, that kind of remains with me, but I think that, you know, everyone's got a drawer of, of the, the items that have been accumulated over time. But I think for me, the stuff that has pride of place is the stuff that is, you know, that has a great story behind it. It has a little bit of emotional resonance or in some ways just kind of brings the mind back to a moment. Like I have a, um, I have a print that I bought in, in Chamonix um, on my desk here. And if nothing else, it kind of brings me back to that high altitude sort of beautiful thin space that seems very close to the heavens. And as I'm like working on writing or, or on zoom calls, it's like when my eyes wander to that, I have a little bit of like peace. And I think that that's the, that's the good criteria that comes with something that you bring home, home with you. Hmm. Um, Geetika, what's your philosophy 
uh, when when you travel. I'm guessing you're traveling a lot. You travel a lot because not just you're you're building a business around this. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I travel a lot even before I was building this business. And I think one of the constant for me always has been, um, for me, souvenirs are stories. Um, kind of like what Colin said. Um, so I'm, I call myself a story collector. Uh, whether it's the story of someone else, uh, a person I met or replaced, or if it's a story I co-created, um, or if it's a story that I created for myself. Um, and so to me, it's about collecting those rich stories that create some kind of an inner transformation within me, whether it's like just pure a moment of joy um, or it's a memory, or it's opening my mind to something new, um, mm -hmm. or, or whether it's making a new connection um, in my mind. I might have seen something in India, and then when I go to Mexico, I see something, and it reminds me of something I saw in India. And that connection that I make, to me, that is a story as well. Give an example um, of a of like a souvenir that that's around you or in your house that you like that sort of fits into that rubric. Um, well, I mean, food is something that everyone understands, right? So I have um, a lot of different kind of chili peppers um, mm. from Mexico. I was just in Santa Fe, and I picked up a lot of chilies there uh, from mm. the, their dried chilies from the market, uh, and then I have my own Kashmiri chilies from India. Um, and I just love that when I'm cooking, I make a conscious choice. Do I want to be in Mexico today or do I want to be in India today? And, and then I also see similarities and I just go into that mode of connection, uh, connecting the cultures is, is why were we growing chilies? Uh, and it just evens out everyone, you know, at the same level. Um, mm. and it constantly reminds me that we're all just, the same <laughs> everywhere we all eat beans we all eat <laughs> tortillas and we all eat chilies um and so it's just a constant reminder for me like these things that that tells me oh boundaries don't exist we're all the same um but we have different flavors to our own stories um right um so that's one example fascinating so my philosophy is actually a little bit uh similar to to, to yours Geetika, which is that uh, for me, um, I love going to local bazaars. Like any country has their local, whatever whatever word they use. Obviously, they um, in different countries bazaar means different things, but it's a local market. And typically, I buy edible things, uh, mostly spices. So um, we just came back. Our whole company came back about a month, month and a half ago from Iceland. Iceland is not known for spices, but they're known for their volcanic salts. And so, um, so for me, that, uh, in fact, I've been using their, their black um, lava. They have like different types, but this is the black lava volcanic one that I've been using. They're my salads or actually an actual food. Um, uh, so, and I've bought spices and, and, and um, local teas. So, I think uh, 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago at this point, I went to Comoros Islands, east coast of Africa. And um, 
they have this particular Comorian tea, which is which doesn't have any caffeine in it. It's sort of eucalyptus and a, a bunch of other things that are mixed together. And um, eleven years later, I actually still have a little bit left. Uh, I, I don't know how, how great it is, but I still have a little bit left. I've, I've drank that. So, um, if I can, if I can uh, use it in cooking or drinking. Or if I can wear it, so uh, this is not a video podcast, this is an audio podcast, but I'm wearing this thing from Senegal that we went, my wife and I went last year to Senegal. And this is a prayer bead, you know, a Muslim prayer bead that's a specific Sufi Muslim prayer bead that is a different, that is uh, put together differently than regular Muslim prayer beads. I wear it uh, pretty much all the time. And so it reminds me of Senegal constantly uh, to do that. So that's my personal i try and steer away my family from the fridge magnus but i've not been totally successful on on that part but um so let's come back to the question which is the mass what's the fate of the mass produced fridge magnet trinket here and there that you buy for yourself and you buy for your friends and family um what's your sense of um what can be done with, with that call and you want to start and then we'll come come back to get the yeah, I think that I was walking around Guadalajara over the 4th, and what's actually kind of interesting about the place is it's not as much of a hyper-tourist-centric economy as maybe you might find in Mexico. But regardless, in certain areas, you have the obligatory sort of things. And I think that a lot of that is going to kind of continue to happen simply because it is a reliable economic generator, kind of a small business generator. Um, you know, I would like I would like to wish that the output and the craft and the creation sitting in some of these things was was better and more thoughtful. But I do think in many places you're going to have a group of tourists that want the figurative post postcard or the fridge magnet. And I do think that some of some of that is just always going to be there. Right. But what I like about this conversation and what I like about being more mindful about it is how can can there be economic opportunity that's mapped to craft, that's mapped to what I think people are wanting out of travel is like betterment or self-actualization or learning a new skill. And that's kind of where where the most fruitful territory is um, in the, in the kind of triangulation of those things. So that's my um, non-committal answer. Geetika, would you still, would you still buy those uh, mass produced trinkets or at least fridge, fridge magnets? I actually have never bought one. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, yeah, like, like I said, I'm I'm truly like a story collector. Um, in general, also as a traveler, I think mm -hmm. um, I live a very minimal lifestyle. Uh, I don't like collecting things. It's, it's almost like I never want to have a checked bag. So um, any you know everything has to be in a. I have to live a life so I can just pack up my bag and go anywhere. Um, so I think part of it is just how I live. Um, but also, I think um, I don't think there's anything wrong with with trinkets and small things. Um, I think it's more the story behind it. If it is meaningful, if it has a story behind it, if it 
there was thought behind it, then it does become meaningful. So for example, like I have um, this this poster from Turkey. Again, it's not a video podcast, but yeah. Um, but this is Ebru painting. Um, it's it's printed by water, uh, ink mm-hmm. in water. And so I did do have this at home. Um, but it is there's a big story to it because I was with an artist who is an Ebru artist, and she made this. I saw it being made. Um, I was part of that experience when she was creating it. Um, and now I have it on my table. So it's not just a decorative piece. It's also some, has a function. I use it on my table. Um, so I could have had a random, you know, plastic, uh, coaster on my table, mm-hmm. but now I have a, a coaster that actually has a story to it. So I would say trinkets can also have that meaning. I mean, that's if you go back into the history, souvenirs were, um, were stories that was a way of taking a piece of that place with you and they were just more crafted if you really go back hundreds of years you know mm-hmm. uh it's just once they started getting mass produced they lost the connection to the people who made it how they were made so if we can bring back that connection um to those trinkets i think they you know they could still have a place uh in the travel industry yeah. um but um, for, but that is not the only way to have a souvenir, I guess. Yeah, and and we'll we'll come into it for a second. One of the things that I look for, even in the mass-produced ones, is a sense of design. And one of the things that being uh, living here in New York, you're exposed to obviously a lot of New York-based souvenirs. If you you can't step a foot within Midtown Manhattan without coming across a souvenir shop, it's just how badly designed. They are, and this is 2023, where um, supposedly design is a lot more good. Design is a lot more accessible. Um, Colin, uh, uh, actually, let me let me add this. Uh, one of the things when I first went to Iceland back in 2010, and when I was first buying, I've been seven times now. Um, uh, first thing that stuck me there, struck me there, was. Uh, yes, these are mass-produced, but they have a good sense of... De- for some reason, they just have a much better sense of design. So the local lava rocks that were very artistically sort of um, have a have an imprint of the Iceland map on it. Uh, these are mass-produced. I'm sure they're not, they may not be produced in the country, for all I know. Uh, but they just have a sense of design. So I wonder uh, if, you know, you, you can talk about the value of design in these uh, souvenirs, Colin, from your perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because I also just think that Iceland has a particularly strong design vernacular, right. and that probably helps with a lot of that. I mean, they don't want to be thrown in with the Scandinavians, but I do think that there is a sense of commonality in terms of you know, minimalism, elegance, the juxtaposition of the beauty and the, the love. The starkness, right? Versus, yeah. yeah, the starkness. And it translates to art, it translates to music, it translates to lots of things. And um, I think what you're getting at, the subtext of this is how do you use design to be like, you know, small little ambassadors, small little representatives of your country in a meaningful way? Because the worst thing that happens is when, you know, when when you when you look at a caricature artist, you know, in Times Square, 
they're basically just exaggerating everything and 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 i think that that's what happens with the worst of kind of uh souvenirs and trinkets is that they take the the one thing about the country and they just kind of blow it out right so uh-huh. it's like whether it's palm trees whether it's you know and um and so the design the soulfulness the the depth of the kind of creation can definitely help with that and it doesn't surprise me that in iceland you can find something that is a little bit more beautiful and crafted yeah i'm just wondering like um why aren't new york uh, uh, you know i love new york t-shirts i think we're sort of stuck uh stuck in the in in that era still with a lot of the um souvenirs that are there in new york i mean i try to buy stuff if i'm traveling somewhere i want to buy a local souvenir actually from new york to give to someone for instance if i'm going to middle east somewhere um just have not found at least a mass produce i'm sure you can go to the moma store or etc and find something there that's certainly high quality but the, but uh go ahead um yeah i think I think it's because um, I'm not sure if the designers are actually designing those souvenirs uh, in most places. Um, it's some company who in, is in the souvenir industry has really no connection to the design and art and culture of that place is is creating something purely out of what would sell. Um, so it's purely designed from that eye versus um, the design process. The creative process is different. It, is always story led it's about representing the story of the people the culture um and that's what designers do that's what artists do that's what they're really good at and so i feel um um when i have traveled all around the world and just looking you know just walking around in souvenir shops i've seen some countries pay more attention their their tourism boards pay more attention to um inviting the artists of their country the famous artists of their country giving them commissions to design the souvenirs of the country mm. um and i have seen usually that they are very well designed um uh i remember specifically this moment uh in slovenia slovenia did such a fantastic job in in um in commissioning local artists to design their marketing logo their you know their trinkets and oh. their souvenirs and you could see it everywhere throughout the city so imagine thinking of the country as a brand uh and and designing trinkets for that versus just a mass supplier and you know creating something that will appeal to to tourists yeah um Colin you had a follow up on that yeah i wrote about something the other day where there's there's a bunch of kind of traditional rugs from Afghanistan that have like images whether it's poppies whether it's AK47s whether it's just this kind of caricature of war and conflict and it's funny because on its face you want to read into that you want to read into like trauma somehow being interwoven into the craft of the thing mm-hmm. but then when you really double click on it it's like that's what's selling <laughs> that's what everyone that that was a ngo or <laughs> diplomat is like oh i'm going to put this in my den at home with some books and it's going to look cool and so like the commercial considerations um and the data were the were were driving that but it was very tempting for people to to read in um you know the trauma and ob- the obvious hardship that that country's seen for so long but it was basically like oh no this sells and that's why we're making more of them and that's why you see so much of it so there is a um there's also there's like 
the supply side and like the demand side. And I think that on the demand side, people are going to, you know, sometimes want something to, you know, something funnier that has a story behind it or some whimsy to it as well. Yeah, I remember, and I'm, I know you were, I think, Colin, you were still living in New York back then when 9-11 happened. And if you remember after 9-11, there was a ban on selling souvenirs that, uh, 9-11 souvenirs, I don't know what if, if there was a term for it. I guess they were called 9-11 souvenirs. Anything that's, that, that celebrated is not the right word, but commemorated, even commemorated 9-11. If you, if, you, if you went downtown to the area to visit, uh, people were caught selling some of the, some of these t-shirts or whatever, and there there were there were stories in media etc. around it. I've, I I remember, and I guess now twenty two years later, it's still being so. I mean now it's, I guess it's it's fine to sell. So I guess there's a time value in 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 these types of things, or time makes everything fine to sell. I remember that was so surreal because you know. I remember walking up from Water Street or whatever and a lot of these vendors selling illicit things and, you know, um, none of them were crass or anything, but it was still, you know, uh, the wounds were pretty fresh. And um, and it was interesting to see that, oh, from this tragedy is driving someone's daily sales or livelihood, which is just kind of the way the world works if we're being non-sentimental about it. But it, but it was interesting to see how it was very closely uh, – monitored and and policed in the, in those early days in those early days yeah um Geetika, coming to your um your company and uh and the 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 what do you call them do you call them tours or do you call them apprenticeships 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 these 27 countries that i i saw in 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 the description how do you, I mean, you started with, if I remember right, when you first started, it was a few, only a few tours, and then you've obviously expanded that. How do you go about selecting these and, and curating these? Because you, you could certainly have a marketplace and have any, allow anybody to list anything. You haven't done that, correct? No, yeah. So we're a curated platform, uh, which means um, uh, we have artists from all around the world who apply. Uh, to be part of the platform, uh, and then we hand select uh, which countries and which uh, art forms we're going to onboard first, um, and then we also do our own outreach and research uh, and figuring out which ones to add. So um, it's it's built up organically a little bit, but now as we have a better understanding, because there's no other marketplace that exists uh, like this, uh, yeah. it's been a little bit of a um, um, chicken and egg game of understanding where the demand is, but also understanding what are things we want to put forward into the world. Uh, what are the things that we want people to be more aware of? Um, so, um, so yeah, we um, started with 12 countries across uh, Europe, Asia, and uh, South America. Uh, and now we are also in Africa, uh, Australia still. <laughs> kind of not on the map yet for us, but we will be adding that. Um, and yeah, there are 27 destinations, 27 countries. Um, after the pandemic, we kind of also added a lot, a lot of artists in the United States itself. Okay. And uh, has anything, has, has a pattern emerged on the types of apprenticeships that people are interested in? Is it pa painting 
category or the way you said the shoes, I, I thought it was, that was fascinating, uh, making your own shoes um, category or something completely else. Like I remember, was there, wasn't there like a bike making or something? If I remember, Yeah, right, we have bamboo bicycle making. Yeah, I remember that uh, from even from your early days as well. Mm-hmm. So has, yeah. has a pattern emerged? Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's actually a very fascinating uh, pattern because um, one is, you know, if you look at just the art world or just craft world, everyone is familiar with painting, photography, writing, and 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 those kind of retreats and experiences have existed even before us, you know, right. like there are photography tours, painting tours, writing retreats. Um, so that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, people are very familiar with it. Um, and then there are a couple of new categories of art forms, which have been trending a lot lately. Um, one is the ceramics uh, and the other is textiles. Um, both are very accessible art forms and you right. don't need a lot of technical expertise. There's a lot of room for error. They, they have kind of a wellness component to it, uh, wellness and nature component to it. I mean, I live in Brooklyn and there are, I don't know, like at least 50 ceramic studios. They're always full. There's a wait list of six months to get in, get a spot there. Mm. So it's just, um, and Instagram has helped a lot too in, in making them sexy. Um, And so we definitely see a huge trend in that. Um, And then um, there's a trend that I, I almost credit us uh, for that, which is there are art forms that we have on there that people were not even aware of. Uh, for example, rattan weaving. Um, now I grew up in India, I'm very familiar right. with rattan, um, but I didn't realize um, that it's it's a very fascinating material for people all around the world. So we have a rattan weaver in in Malaysia, and, mm. um, and so Netherlands, Denmark, a lot of the Scandinavian countries use a lot of rattan. So it's very- Interesting. Um, um, I mean, wood in general is is heavily used in those countries and in interiors, and wood is also used a lot in uh, interiors in you know I guess all around the world. And right. with more and more people wanting to have interiors reflect nature, um, wood different forms of wood looking things, whether bamboo, rattan, you know, and other woods, they're making a comeback. So they're, um, and, and rattan is kind of an easier material to work with, let's say, than trying to cut maple, <laughs> you know, with a table right. saw. Right. So, um, so yeah, rattan weaving, or we have um, art forms that have a little bit of a wellness component. So um, in Japan, we have Japanese ink painting. And the art of Japanese ink painting is deeply connected to um, the Zen philosophy and mindfulness. And, you know, just to even start the act of Japanese painting, you have to get into the right posture, you have to get into the right mindset, you have to hold the brush a certain way. And so there's a deep, deep, deep sense of um, wellness and mindfulness to it. And and the connection, um, of mindfulness to your body. So I think art forms that help you get into that state um, hmm. give you that opportunity for active wellness. So you have you have opportunity to go for a yoga retreat. You have opportunity to go to a spa or you could do Japanese ink painting. Yeah. Um, and so people who are seeking more active wellness opportunities, any art forms that relate to that, they are also kind of gaining a lot of popularity. 
And um, do, do what is the repeat customer like? Like, and what's their like? How do they explore that that sort of thread that you're trying to weave from one apprenticeship to another? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, these people who are going on a vacation with an artist, um, the one and these are single solo person only. So like, there's no two like husband wife can't go. Only a person can one person can go. No, no, no. You can go. So we have okay. uh, couples. We have two friends. We have families too who go okay. quite often. Um, siblings, um, but quite often it's it's solo travelers. Okay. I guess it's hard to find another person who shares the same interest um yeah very specific yeah interest yeah yeah it's it's not always like i mean we do have a lot of people actually after the pandemic we're seeing more shared experiences because people are wanting to have more shared experiences so they're mm -hmm. doing it with their parents or friends uh couples the common thread amongst all these people and uh age doesn't matter they're like 80 year olds to 80 year olds the common thread is that they're all curious learners they are people who are driven by curiosity they just want to learn something new they just want to uh, get out of their day-to-day -day routine and try something else and so they might go try ceramics one time but the next time they might go do calligraphy so for them every experience is just um, a creative input to their life so they just see these as different points of inspiration for for their life so i often compare it to you know how um, um once you're on the fitness path you know you just you just go you, right. you do yoga you go running you you have your strength training and then fitness just becomes a way of life mm -hmm. and i think there are people for whom being creative is a way of life um, it doesn't mean you necessarily have a creative profession, but they just see being creative as, as, and being curious as, as exist as how they would exist in, in their everyday life. So they, they don't care. So we've had one person, she did, she learned, um, how to do letterpress printmaking in Slovenia. Then she went and did, um, katakami, which is karakami, sorry, which is a Japanese style of printmaking. Um, and then she went and did um, ceramics in Spain. So, yeah, most people are just going there to to learn different things. Um, the other kind of people are are actual artists and creatives. Um, right. And they they are going there to enhance their skills, or they are going there because there are specific artists who hold the key. Um, to that art form, you know, they have deep roots in the in the place. So for example, we work with um, uh, the famous G's Bend quilters who are, um, who have deep history to Alabama, you know, through the slave history. So they, mm. these quilts were made as a way to capture memories of, of the slaves when they died. And it's the biggest art movement in North America. Um, all these quilts are in, the Smithsonian and you know all the big museums. We re they recently had a traveling exhibition, so people want to understand that story, that craft, um, that history, and so they go to learn from Loretta and Marlene to Alabama to learn how to make these quilts. Fascinating! Wow. You we brought up Instagram a little while ago, Kitika and Colin. I want to bring you into this as well. 
uh, I was reading some material uh, uh, for for this podcast, and one of the articles online said that uh, there's a possibility that people now a, a lot of the young people are not buying souvenirs; they're taking selfies and and um, or or just photos themselves. And obviously, phone cameras, etc., are now at the best they've ever been. Um, and that the value of the physical objects is becoming less important to them. I wonder, uh, sort of, your thoughts on that, and how much validity you see in there, Colin. You want to start with it? Yeah, I think the um, the selfie factor is a pretty negative one, in my opinion. Um, I think if you are out in Kyoto, kind of walking among shrines and kind of more spiritual places, and you see a million people with the kind of selfie sticks, it almost it almost is a bastardization of the experience. Right. And I think, I think what, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that we ascribe to Gen Z and there's a lot of things that we tend to think and associate. And maybe one of them is being very digital and very social oriented. But I also think that gravitas something that really knows what it is, whether it's a place, whether it's a hotel, whether it's a, environ they actually really like that like for example like you can't get into bemelman's bar at the carlisle because it's like all the gen z kids think it's like the deepest most interesting thing <laughs> so i do think that there's there is something interesting about a you know physical objects being rediscovered i i, I tend to not want to characterize the younger generations as being purely digital or just being super selfie um obsessed or, nar or narcissistic which is yeah. a word that people have used with some of the younger younger exactly. generation yeah maybe there's a way with these new types of experiences that are being created to almost uh recontextualize or reinvigorate what what a souvenir or physical craft can be beyond the fridge magnet into something that almost kind of stays in your soul. And I think when it has that sincerity of approach and that depth, whether it's Gen Z or young people, they can understand that, right? So um, perhaps a reboot is necessary. And I think this particular project that you're working on is, um, is a great example of that. Hmm. Um, Keithika, how much are the, 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 uh, the people sharing this during the apprenticeship? on the in like in social media people taking photos etc and and what's your philosophy on it it's interesting um most of our guests don't end up sharing much on social media um part of it mm. just could be is because they're just so busy making um that, that their hands are in clay who's going to take a photograph <laughs> so um but also but you you're know, certainly using some of these to market you know, through Instagram. Yeah, sure. Yes, yes, sure. And and so we sometimes have to remind them, you know, to take some photos. We have to sometimes remind the artist to take some photos just for our purposes. But right, right. if we if we had a choice, I, I would still prefer that that we don't have to, you know, kind of suggest that to them because um I think it takes away from the experience. We really want people to be in the moment, be present in the moment and not be tied to their devices because that is the whole point of right. this experience. Um um, but I would say I, I am noticing a slightly different pattern regarding selfies. Um, I find actually the younger generation is less tied to their devices, even though they are more digital. And I feel it's because digital is such a given to them that it's not anything special for them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they 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 capture it, but like again, you know, they use you know um, Burial or Snapchat. Like for them, the digital stuff is about capturing moment, uh, and then it just disappears. Um, and even in our um, because we we get people from all demographics, we actually see the Gen X and and the Boomers use selfie more than, than the than the Gen Zs and the Gen Ys. Um, because they kind of get creeped out by that. Because one, just selfie has been, you know, demoted. Uh, it's not cool. Yeah. Um, so they don't, they don't want to do it. But also, because they grew up in the digital age, um, for them, what is true luxury, what is actually cool, are the stories. Um, and also, the younger generation is more conscious of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, they care more about the world they want to live in. Um, so, um, they, they try to be more ethical, uh, in their choices also. That makes sense. Um, we haven't solved any of the issues that we, we said at the start, the, the world souvenirs problems, but I think we had just a fascinating discussion. Um, I think what we should leave this with is I think there, there definitely is a realization in general on travel's weight on the world, and and the hope is that people that that as as uh, uh, people realize sort of the the weight of the objects that the uh, of of anything that they do in travel, that souvenirs become more meaningful, at least more sustainable. Um, uh, from that perspective, Colin, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think. This represented the kind of conversations that I'm excited to have with this podcast because on its face, souvenirs are just a thing. But when you pull back the layers, similar to your thesis with travel, it touches so many elements of economics, of social strata, of emotion, of mobility. Of globalization. Of globalization. That we didn't even get into, yeah. I I think it's really exciting to look at a thing that might just seem – you know, like a thing that you have in your drawer, but, you know, we've really scratched the surface in, in showing how it can be much more than that. And also um, in the instance of, of this project, how it can be evolved in a really thoughtful way that actually has some soul and also creates a memory. So I love Long-term it. Memory. Yeah. I think I just wanted to leave a little um, comment and hopefully it will inspire people in the souvenir industry. Go ahead. Um, if we can start thinking of of people as as the biggest treasures of a place and start thinking about how do we connect people, the the tourists to the people of that place, to their stories, um, and 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 bridge that gap, I think we can start thinking of souvenirs in a different way. Because I think right now um, the souvenirs as objects are totally disconnected from the people of the place, whether it's how they're made, the stories they're te- uh, they're telling, um, how they're made, why they are made, all those parts are totally disconnected from souvenirs. So if we can start adding mm. that and start, start making those connections, souvenirs will start becoming more meaningful. I, I was, this is fascinating because I was just reading, I'm reading something on the history of travel and there's a critique of museums there where uh, you've taken these objects from their original context and put them in a museum and they're really objects as in physical things and you've objectified them outside of their context. 
So a tourist that enters a museum is very much in the objectification mode uh, versus sort of a deeply immersive people-to-people mode, which is what what you're saying, Gitika, which exactly. I which I which I thought thought was a fascinating argument. This history book that I'm um, reading. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like how do we remove the multiple layers we have put between these objects and the people of the place? How do we remove those layers? Peel that back and like bring people closer to the people of that place. And I think the souvenirs will suddenly get more meaning. And that's what we're doing is people are interacting with the people for a week and really learning and spending time with them. And that's what makes it so meaningful and magical. Thank you. That was fascinating. Thank you, Geetika. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Colin. Um, I just want to wrap up by saying that this is our third episode in the Skift Ideas podcast. And if you like this podcast, please Subscribe to it, please share, please review if you can. We have a lot more coming with our Skiff Global Forum that's coming up in September 26th to 28th in New York City. If you haven't registered for it, please go to live.skiff.com and to get your tickets, the, some of the biggest CEOs and creative uh, folks in the industry and creative topics like these will come up as well. And uh, the Skift Ideas franchise, if you don't know this, is, an, is a franchise that we uh, have created to celebrate the innovation and creativity in the travel industry and, and talk about topics in a creative way like we did with this podcast. There's the Skift Ideas Editorial Hub, the Skift Idea Awards, and, uh, uh, and then obviously the Skift Podcast as well. Thank you, everyone, and looking forward to uh, another episode with all of you. Thank you, folks. Join us for future Skift Ideas podcasts as we speak with the most creative and forward-thinking innovators in travel. As always, go to skift.com to stay up to date on the latest news and insights across the travel industry.